is the Bible history or is it just full of stories that are made up that didn't happen that way? Uh, that's the issue we're discussing today as we're looking at is the Bible history. We took a poll of the most common objections to Christianity and this one came in a second most common objection. It was right up there. There's this nagging doubt that people have that the Bible is about things that really didn't happen, that it's not true, that it's not history. Now, for some, that's probably because the Bible's just so old. It's written long ago, in days before there was technology and phones on your camera and news media and uh, where pretty much every event that happens around the world today is filmed from by a thousand people from a hundred different angles and you can see it beam to your house almost instantaneously. And there's this view that if I can't see it myself or if I haven't got the video of it, then then I won't believe it. For some, though, it's because they've heard the stories from the Bible, you know, the extraordinary tales of Jonah being swallowed by the fish, uh, the way that the Red Sea parted and the people of Israel walked through in safety and then it smashed the, uh, the people of uh, Egypt as they chased them. Uh, Jesus coming back to life again after three days. He was definitely dead and buried and then he rose again. And they assume that either they're just myths like Hercules or Zeus or perhaps the Dreamtime in Australia, uh, or, or maybe maybe they assume that they're allegories, they're, they're moral stories like Aesop's fables, things like Hansel and Gretel and you know, don't go play in the house of witches and they, things that aren't yours, the gingerbread houses, or, or the tortoise in the hare that you know, it doesn't matter if you're the slowest now, you can catch up. They've got a moral, but, but you know, in both those cases, no one thinks the myths or the allegories uh, are re- really happens. They're not true stories. They're just there to, to give you an understanding of yourself or the world or something. But for others, their doubts come from having a different religious background and they've been told by their leaders that the Bible's been deliberately altered, changed by the church. The leaders of Islam are adamant about that, as are the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and many others, in order to make sure that their followers uh, don't trust the Bible as we have it because they might just go out and read it and believe it and discover something about what they believe themselves. And so they have this constant diatribe that goes along the lines of, well, the Christians over the years, the church, have changed the Bible to suit themselves to, to grow their power base. They're, they've made it all up over time and polluted the real history of Jesus, which we know they've polluted that with lies and become apostate in the process. They must have because the real Jesus would have agreed with us. He was, would have taught the things that we're teaching. Uh, he wouldn't have taught lies like they now believe. And, and the leaders have to say that because They know that the Bible fundamentally disagrees with them and sits in judgment over their teaching about God, about the world, about the future. If the Bible's right, then then it turns out that they're preaching lies about God. And for all those reasons, people are confused about it or they have their doubts about the Bible being history. It's old, it's just myths, it's been changed. But before we get into whether the Bible really is history, it's worth asking the question, does it even matter? Does it matter if it happened or not? I mean, if some weird people want to believe 
in it, well, that's well and good for them. It doesn't change anything or it doesn't bother me, does it? Well, it sure does matter. It certainly matters to the persecuted Christians around the world. It doesn't make the secular news about thousands of Christians are murdered every year because they are Christian. Uh, in 2018, 4,500 Christians were killed around the world. In 2019, about 3,500. No one's able to date it from last year, but I suspect the number was even higher during COVID. And, and many, many more, thousands more are assaulted, jailed, face eviction and jail for their faith. If the Bible is not history, if what it claims is not true, then they are being slaughtered and suffering for nothing. But it's not just the persecuted church. All Christians have a massive problem if the Bible is not history. Uh, the Bible itself puts it this way in in book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. It's specifically talking about Jesus rising from the dead and, and claiming that that happened. But it says there's a problem if it didn't because he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if the events of the Bible did not happen, then Christians are stupid, they are liars, they are following a false God who cannot help them, they're sacrificing for nothing, and so it really does matter for them if it's true or not. But it also matters to the billions of devotees of the other religions of the world who are being told lies and are being held from the true and living God if in fact the Bible is history. They're being held prisoners of false gods and false religion. But I'll tell you what, it matters even more for you no matter what you believe. Even if you're not a believer in anything, if the Bible is history, if it's real. Because if it's history then there is a supernatural world to consider and contend with. There's something other than just what you can see and feel and taste and touch. More than that, if the Bible is history, then God is there. God is real. And not just any God of your choosing, but the true and living God, uh, the one who made you, the one who uh, has your life in his hands, the one who holds your future in his hands. And so what you do with him really matters if the Bible is history. Winston Churchill once said, uh, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that, that's true enough. And many people have made the same mistakes in the past if they just read about it and try, they could have avoided it. But if the Bible is history and we fail to learn from it, then we're not just doomed to repeat the mistakes that many people in the Bible made, but in fact, we are doomed to face God without having the hope that he offers. But how do we work it out? How do you work out if the Bible's history? How do you work out if anything's history for that matter? Uh, what are the, the factors that go into proving something is legitimate history? What things do you want to know and look at to know if something really happened or not? Well, there are three basic things that you need to check that historians have come up with. Uh, the transmission, 
uh, the reliability of the witnesses and corroboration. Uh, transmission is about whether what we have in our hands is the same thing that was originally reported. Can we be sure that what we've got in the pages of an ancient text are, are what was written or is it more like Chinese whispers? You know, they game you play as kids where you whisper and by the end of the circle it, it's never the same. Uh, the end message is nothing like the original. And, and whether it was del- changed deliberately or accidentally along the way, it fiddled with. So that's transmission. Reliability of the witnesses. Uh, were they eyewitnesses? Did they see it themselves with their own eyes? Or did they just hear about the things from somebody else? Were they hallucinating? Is there something to say that they weren't in their right mind? Uh, what were their motives when they wrote? Uh, were they trying to get favour with someone? Did they have something to gain from saying what they said? Did they stand up to scrutiny when the truth of it was tested? And the last thing is corroboration. Were there multiple witnesses to the same events? Right? If only one person saw it and wrote about it, how do we know? Uh, and, and were those who were corroborating all beating the same drum or were they coming from different positions and yet still claiming the same facts? Transmission, reliability of the witnesses and corroboration. You get all three of those and I'm sure you'd agree that we're talking about real history and we're not talking about fiction. So let's see if the Bible stacks up. Uh, I want to start with transmission. Do we have the right Bible in our hands. Now, there's basically two different things that historians look at to judge whether the copies we have of any ancient manuscripts or writings are accurate to what they were written originally. Uh, One thing they look at is how many different copies of uh, manuscripts are in existence that are are all copies of the same thing. And the more of them, the better. right? And, And... The second thing they look at is how close in time are the copies that we have to the time when the original was written. The closer the time, the the smaller the time gap, the better. So, for example, if someone dug up an ancient scroll today uh, in the Middle East and it talked about King Xerxes of Persia and and there was nothing else like it, nothing that reported the same events and, and it was dated to 1000 AD, which is about 1,500 years after King Xerxes lived, you'd, you know, the only one and much later, you'd have some strong doubts about its reliability. It might have been completely made up by someone at the time. Maybe they were you know, going through a phase of selling ancient artefacts and thought we could make some quick money and so they faked it. But here's some... Uh, oh, sorry, on the other hand, if uh, someone dug up that same scroll, but it turned out to be from 400 BC, so only 100 years later. And in fact, there were 50 other copies of the same thing, making the same claims. Give or take a few spelling mistakes. You'd be pretty confident about it, that this is what happened and this was what was being reported around the time. Now, let me give you some real life examples. Take Homer's Iliad, for example, uh, the epic saga about Achilles and the Trojan Wars. Uh, it was written about 800 BC, 800 years before Christ, and so we're talking about 2,800 years ago, 2,900 years ago. The earliest copies of the Iliad uh, in existence are dated from around 400 BC. That, that's 400 years after he wrote it. How many ancient copies are there? 
Well, it turns out there are 643 copies. Now, that's a ton when it comes to ancient writings. That, that is the gold standard, right? Homer's Iliad, that, that is what Homer wrote, right? Even though it's 400 years later, there's so many copies from different regions, and so it's gold. Uh, his Plato's writings, the, the Greek philosopher who, who shaped much of Western thought, he was writing about 400 B.C., but the earliest copy of any of his works that we have is from 900 AD. That's a 1,300-year gap. How many manuscripts are there of his works? Well, there's only seven. It's a tiny number, and they're from 1,300 years later. But, but it's interesting because no one doubts that, that they're historical, that that's what Plato wrote. Julius Caesar, he wrote the Gallic Wars, describing his conquests over about 60 years. Uh, he wrote it from 100 BC onwards. Earliest copy, 900 AD. That's a thousand years later. Only 10 copies of it in existence at all. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, he wrote in 100 AD. Uh, a thousand years till the earliest known copy in existence. And, and, and there's only 20 copies altogether. Now, those are normal sorts of figures. That's, that's what we have from the ancient world. Uh, not many copies, far later, but, but still no one ever doubts that they're reliable, that we're reading about the real Julius Caesar and what he did and things. We might say that he, he was the victor and so he got to write some of his history, but, but they are history. These events happened. Well, what about the Bible? Well, I just want to take the New Testament, which is the part that's about Jesus and about the early church. Uh, the New Testament is, uh, is actually not a book. It's, it's made up of books. It's 27 different books, all written between about 50 and 100 AD. Those are writing about the same time as the Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, what manuscripts do we have and how old are they? Well, we've got fragments of scrolls from 114 AD onwards. Very, very early. He, he's uh, a photo of the earliest fragment of the Bible. Uh, it's uh, called P52. It's in the John Rylands Library. Uh, and it's a, it's a part of John chapter 18. It's just a few sentences. Uh, we've got whole books of the New Testament intact from 200 AD. And we've got a complete New Testament altogether where it's bound in one book from 325 AD. Uh, here's a picture of it. This is called Codex Sinaiticus. We're talking about very short amounts of time gap from a historical point of view. In fact, this is better than gold standard. This is better than any other ancient text. Nothing else compares. How many of them do we have? 5,366 of them. It's an astonishing, the evidence that we have for the New Testament. And what's more, the difference between these thousands of different fragments and scrolls and books over a period of time are so minute. They are a few spelling mistakes, a word added here or a word left out there. And we can develop a whole family tree of manuscripts and work out who copied who and when the mistakes crept in because they got repeated down the years. And so you can figure it all out. And even better than that is the fact that uh, even with the, the, the few mistakes that are in it uh, that people did make, there's nothing important that hinges on any of them. 
There's no theological difference. There's no meaning difference. There's no story changes. There's, there's, there's nothing that's different about the claims at all, which means that you can be completely confident that what we have in our hands today in the Bible is exactly what the apostles and the gospel writers of the New Testament wrote. It hasn't been changed. Um, it hasn't been fudged. It hasn't been rewritten to suit current trends or to, uh, at some point in the history of the church. And when people have tried to change the Bible, and there have been those over the years, like the Jehovah's Witnesses who are claiming that the, you know, what we have is an original, when they put out their version, it's easy to spot it as a fake. Alright then. Well, what about the witnesses? If the transmission, okay, we've got what they wrote. What about the witnesses? Were they reliable in the first place? That'd be good to work out. Did they see themselves the events or, or was it just hearsay? And when they wrote what they wrote, was it for personal gain or to carry favour or to get ahead in some way? Now, again, it's pretty easy to find the answers to those questions. One of the great benefits of the Bible being a whole collection of books is that it's written by a variety of different people who came from different walks of life, different countries, different backgrounds. It wasn't all just one person making up a religion uh, as was the case with L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology or with Muhammad and Islam or Joseph Smith Jr. with Mormonism or Charles Taze Russell with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, no, the Bible writers were different people who all genuinely were convinced about the same thing, right, from different times and places, they're all around the same you know, time frame, but they were convinced that Jesus really was God's promised king and Saviour, who the, the Old Testament calls the Messiah or the Christ. And, and that this Christ, Jesus, wasn't just the king of Israel, and not even just the king of the Roman Empire at the time, but he was king of all the world for all time. Which, mind you, back then, and still today, was a very, very dangerous thing to be going about saying that there is a king who's not our king, right? And so it sounded like revolution all the time. Now, some of them were eyewitnesses to Jesus themselves. They saw with their own eyes the miraculous powers that Jesus wielded. They heard him speak when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. They were there. Uh, of the four biographies of Jesus, which we, we call the Gospels, the four Gospels, uh, two of them were written by people who followed Jesus from start to end. Uh, that's John and Matthew. Uh, when Mark wrote his gospel, he, he was writing it on behalf of his mentor, the Apostle Peter, who was also an eyewitness, as went on to be the leader of the church. And basically, you know, it was their discussion and he wrote it down. Uh, the, the fourth writer of the gospel was Luke. Luke, he was a doctor and a researcher who went and looked at the evidence himself and, and interviewed tons of eyewitnesses and, and he came to believe. I mean, this is how his biography of Jesus starts. This is Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus, that's the guy he's writing to, so that you may know the certainty 
of the things about which you have been instructed. Now, I'm writing this to verify the things. I went and researched this. I talked to the people. And amongst the rest of the writers of the New Testament books, which is lots of letters to early churches and things, several of the writers were other eyewitnesses. One of them was Jesus' own brother. And, and the most stunning of all, 13 books of the New Testament were written by an enemy of Jesus who had been seeking to discredit Jesus and destroy the church before he was shockingly converted to Christianity himself. And that's the Apostle Paul. He's a man who had overseen the arrest and murder of hundreds of Christians personally. Uh, and, and yet he describes how he met Jesus himself, risen from the dead, in the most remarkable way. And he couldn't help but be convicted that he was fighting for the wrong team. And he ended up giving his life to Jesus. He was convinced it was all true, all the things he'd been seeking to destroy. And when you think about what happened to these guys afterwards, you can tell how utterly convinced of the truth of what they were writing. Because they certainly weren't doing it for the money. Uh, They weren't doing it for power. They really weren't doing it for popularity. If they'd wanted any of those things, they would have given up pretty quickly and renounced it all as, as lies they were mistaken. Within a year of Jesus dying and rising again, Peter and John were arrested and jailed and were uh, on being ordered not to speak about Jesus or worse things would happen to them. Uh, they said this in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We we can't deny it. We we were there. We heard it. We saw it. James, John's brother, is beheaded just months afterwards for speaking about Jesus. In fact, of all the apostles who were eyewitnesses, uh, all of them but one, were executed for their faith. The other one, he got exiled to a prison colony for the rest of his life where he died as an old man. That's that's John. In the 1960s, uh, Chuck Carlson was a, was a special counsel to Richard Nixon uh, when the Watergate scandal broke in America. Uh, and, and Chuck Carlson was convicted like the rest of the conspirators for the whole affair. He went to jail himself for a while. And later on, he became a Christian. And it's really interesting when you hear what he says about that. Why, why did I become a Christian? He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Transmission, tick. Reliable eyewitnesses with nothing to gain, tick. What about corroboration? Well, it turns out there's a mountain of things to corroborate the history of the Bible as well, from 
archaeological digs, even of places that were thought not to have existed or tribes that were thought not to have existed. The Hittites, no one thought they were real until the 1850s. Uh, Bible talks about them and then suddenly they were discovered. Solomon's colony was dug up in 2004 accidentally and they went, well, hang on, the Bible mentioned that and we didn't think it existed. Uh, even minute details, you know, in, in other writings mention events and people and stuff. Even, even the fact that Felix, who was the governor of Judea at one point, uh, had a wife named Drusilla. The Bible says that. Well, it turns out when they dug up Pompeii, she was named in the records of the people who had lived there and who died in the volcanic explosion at Pompeii. But they're incidental details. What about the big ticket items? What about Jesus himself? Now, John Dixon's a historian and theologian. He wrote a book a few years ago called Simply Christianity, which is, which is a great read. I want to, you know, if you want to read up on this stuff, that's a good book. But in it, he puts together all the ancient writings that mention Jesus and the early church, all of whom who were either neutral towards Christianity or who were opposed to it. None of, he's not, these are not writings from any Christians. And so he goes through it all and, and lays them all out and you can read them. And then he writes this in conclusion. If we piece together all the information contained in the above references, it is fascinating that just about the whole story of Jesus can be uncovered without even opening the Bible. We learn when he lived, where he lived, that he was an influential teacher, that he was engaged in activities thought to be supernatural, that he was executed, when and by whom, that he had a brother called James who was also executed, that people claimed to have seen him raised from the dead, that he was widely known by the prestigious title, The Christ. Uh, if, you, if you want, I can lend you the book. Uh, you can get it on, you know, on your Kindle uh, if you want to see the evidence yourself. Now, that's corroboration from outside the Bible. But as it turns out, there's also good corroboration from inside the Bible too from the enemies of Christianity who are mentioned. Even the enemies of Jesus acknowledged his power. They didn't believe he was from God and they figured that he must have tapped into the power of the devil, uh, that he was a demon or something and that's how he could do the miracles. Maybe he's a magician of great power, but they believed they happened. They, they weren't doubting the events. They, they, they understood them differently, but they saw them. Enemies were converted when confronted with the evidence. People like Paul, as I mentioned. And even the persecutors of Christianity who'd love to have had proof that it was all a sham couldn't deny the facts about Jesus. The Roman authorities couldn't dig up you know, the body. They were searching. They paid bribes and uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, in our reading in Acts, Paul's on trial for his life and he has the audacity to say this to the king. It's in Acts 26 and verse 26. For the king knows about these matters and I can speak boldly to him for I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice since it was not done in a corner. What's he saying to a King Agrippa there? He's saying, you know this stuff, you know the facts, you know it's true. It, none of this has happened in anywhere outside of your jurisdiction or notice where your, your secret police and your goons couldn't see it. You, you know it's all true, Agrippa. And what's more, he adds in verse 27, King Agrippa, 
Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. What does King Agrippa say in response to that? Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Now notice he's not denying the evidence. In fact, it's a corroboration by silence that the facts are true. But he simply doesn't want to become a Christian. And no wonder, because that'll put him up on public ridicule. I mean, he's arresting Christians and putting them in jail. They're on trial for their lives. He's he's the one who gets the power over them. No wonder he doesn't want to become one. He'd become public enemy number one in Israel. The whole nation would be in uproar. He had a hard heart. That was the problem. And that's the real heart of the problem, isn't it? The issue that people have about the Bible being history is is really just a furphy. Any little amount of digging will turn up the fact that it is. It's a a smokescreen that people have. Well, maybe in reality in what they say, but they, they might say it's the reason. They might hold on to the hope, the desperate hope that the Bible's not really history, but they don't want to do the work to find out for themselves because if they did, they might just have to change. They might just have to reorientate their lives around Jesus Christ. And that's because while the Bible really is true history, it's not just history. It's far more than that. It's not just events from the past. These these were predicted events. King Agrippa knew the prophecies. There's something like 360 individual specific promises about Christ and what he would do when he would come, all written from 1,000 to sort of 700 BC, right, in the Old Testament. And guess what? Jesus Christ has fulfilled them all. And because of that, they are events that are a testimony to God's faithfulness. God said these things would happen and they did. God is always faithful to his word. You can trust what God says. When God makes promises to you, you can rely on them. And he has made very great and very, very precious promises, wonderful promises, which he's put into effect by the events of the Bible. He says you can be part of your his family. And you can be because Jesus came to welcome you into his family. He says you can be forgiven of your sins and for not living for God. And you can be because Jesus died for you on a cross to pay for your sins. He says you can have life unending and know what God's got in store and know that it's a joyful future after you die. And you can know that because Jesus is alive again. He is risen from the dead. As our second reading from 2 Peter said, Peter, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, he said, we have God's great and precious promises so that we might share everything that God has on offer. He goes on to say, we're not following cleverly contrived myths when we follow Jesus. And he goes through some of the evidence. He recounts some of the things that happened in the Gospels, even in one of the letters written later. He's, you know, it's, it's, it's all the same testimony. It's not made up. Uh, Paul talks about not following old wives' tales or made-up stories. Uh, this is true. God is faithful. And these historical events are not just predicted events. 
And they don't just speak of God's faithfulness, they're also powerful events, ones that change history, ones that are earth-shattering, ones that are life-changing, ones that profoundly influence both the present and the future. They are a guarantee that God is real and that we've got to face him and give an account for what we've done with him and whether we've taken him up on his precious promises or just spat them back out in his face by ignoring them. You cannot ignore God. You, you cannot ignore Jesus. His life is history. His death paid for your sins. And his resurrection means not just that there's life, but there is a judgment that is coming. And there is life to be had with him. There is a way to come through that judgment well. The things that happen with Jesus are not made up. They're not fantasy. They're not fables to teach you something. They're not morality tales. They're not any of those things. They're cold, hard facts that demand change, that demand that you give your life to Jesus. People use their doubts about the Bible being history never to read it. But here, in fact, in the Scriptures is where you meet the God who made the universe, who made you. God is here in his word, interacting with the world, making sense of the world, speaking to the world, transforming the world, saving the world, driving the world towards its sure end. And right now he's here inviting you to join in with his wonderful story of recreation, to know him and to come back to him. Don't make excuses. He's paid for you. He has proved himself in history. Will you come to him?